Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. That reminds me that I was preparing the sermon tonight on Numbers chapter 13 and 14. If you want to turn there, I was thinking that I might pick the last hymn sing hymn, and I might pick the hymn, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, and cast a wistful eye. I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Then I looked it up and saw that it's not in our hymnal. (laughs) I thought, I was sure that was in our hymnal, but it's not. But that's the theme. Well, in one sense, it's the reverse of that theme because this is a very sad section of numbers, really one of the saddest, we might say apostasies, of the Israelites in their unwillingness to enter the promised land. We're going to read chapter 13 and into chapter 14. I'm going to, when we get to the list of the 12 spies, I'm going to skip through that and just highlight a few things when we get to verse 4. So follow with me, Numbers 13 at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. And I practiced stumbling through the names. I'm going to skip through the names. You might notice at the end of verse 8, we have from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. His original name was Hoshea. And later on in this text, we see he was renamed Joshua by Moses. One means God saves or he saves, and Joshua means Yahweh saves. So it's a more powerful sense there. And um, the verse that speaks of that, verse um, 16 anticipates uh, the man that Joshua will become, but is evident from our text. And so skipping on down, you might just notice that also uh, Caleb is mentioned in verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And so really Judah and Ephraim were the foremost two tribes from the north and from the south. And the really the heroes of if there is a human hero at all. It's these two who had faith. And then we go ahead, skip ahead to verse 16. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage, 
and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, and Tamai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And then it goes on with Joshua's good report as well. And we'll see the rest of chapter 14. The man was raised dirt poor. His mother died when he was young. His father was a hard man who took his wages from the young man until he was 21. He had to educate himself. He worked hard at it, often mocked by his father about his attempts to learn to read. He failed in business twice. In politics, he lost eight elections. But as I go on here, you might have already guessed who I'm speaking about. Uh, Abraham Lincoln kept pressing on in his life and was, as you know well, finally elected president of the United States. A story of 
personal perseverance, especially political perseverance, and other lessons of perseverance could be learned from Abraham Lincoln in his role in the Civil War. But Numbers 13 is a different kind of story about perseverance. It's a story about the failure of perseverance, and particularly the failure to persevere in faith in the Lord. And yet there is a contrasting counterpoint story going on at the same time in the example of of Caleb and Joshua, who believed the word of the Lord and who persevered in faith in God and His word, and who gave a good report, even though it was not heeded. And we find that 40 years later, they do enter the land. We would like to look at this issue of perseverance, the battle of walking by faith, in two main parts. The first part is about the unbelief of Israel, and the second point we'll see is the necessity of perseverance. First, we want to look at the unbelief of Israel and their failure to enter the promised land. In the beginning of chapter 13, we find repeated in verse 1, when it tells us about the Lord speaking to Moses and saying, send men out to spy the land, that it then says, which I am giving to the people of Israel. In other words, the promise is repeated there right in verse 1. It's been repeated many times in the Old Testament. The promise has been handed down from generation to generation. And in fact, the promise was so dear to Israel when he died that he had Joseph and his sons take his body up to Hebron Hebron, and that whole uh, cavalcade of Egyptian uh, nobility went along with him, quite a sight for the dwellers of Canaan at the time. It was so precious to Joseph that he made his sons and his people promise to take his bones with them when they went to the promised land. This promise had been passed down. And now it has been two years approximately since the people of Israel have been redeemed from their bondage in Egypt. God had worked those great wonders we know so well on their behalf, the mighty miracles, the plagues in Egypt, and uh, their great deliverance through the, the Passover and the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, Then after that, the revelation of God on Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, which was such a powerful experience for them all. Then there was the provision of water from the rock in the wilderness and manna as food to sustain them, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to protect them from the sun and also to give them light at night and to guide them and to be evidence of the presence of God in their midst. All of these things the Israelites have experienced. And now, think of it. They have left Mount Sinai where the book of Numbers begins when the first census, the first numbering takes place and they have found how to form themselves around the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the middle of the camp with the Levites and how to march. In fact, when Balaam would later look down from a mountain and see the Israelites coming. Years from now, he would say, how beautiful are the tents of Israel, just looking at their formation and thinking of God present in the midst of them. 
And now they have set out, and it would have been a few weeks' journey uh, to this southern end of the promised land in the desert. And they're in the wilderness still, but they're very close to the southern border of what would become the promised land. It was almost time to enter and possess the land. Can you imagine their expectation, their excitement, their hope? But um, the way that that would happen, they knew, would be a military campaign. Uh, This holy war in which God would strengthen them and lead them to dispossess the people of the land. Well, eventually that would happen, we know. It would be under Joshua 38 years later from this point, but not now. And why is that? Because of what happens here in chapters 13 and 14. The people of Israel do not persevere in faith in the Lord. It's as simple as that. But instead, they give way to unbelief, and they rebel against the Lord. At one point, they're about to stone Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. So we want to look at this stunning failure of faith. In the beginning of chapter 13, I didn't read all the names, but we see that Moses chooses 12 men to lead in this scouting mission, I would call it, and one from every tribe. These men, if you compare to Numbers chapter 1, they're different from the heads of the 12 tribes that are listed back in Numbers 1. Most likely, most commentaries surmise that these are younger leaders who would be more fit for this 500-mile-plus round-trip hike through the Promised Land. And probably these men were well-known, they were respected, Uh, there was a lot of hope set out on them, and they're uh, called to spy out the land. I used the word scouting a few minutes ago because that is probably what it was more like. Um, There's no evidence that it was to be a secret mission such as the two spies that Joshua would eventually send to spy out Jericho, who go undercover and everything. I'm not saying that these men broadcasted who they were, but it wasn't like they were hiding and sneaking around. There there were 12 of them that would have been pretty hard to do, and they go throughout the land. We are not told to what degree the inhabitants of the land knew who they were, but we have the sense that they traveled openly, and it was a group of the 12 of them, as I said. And by the end of the time, they're carrying this great big cluster of grapes so large that two men have to carry it. I'm told that the tourism industry of modern Israel, their emblem is two men carrying a cluster of grapes with a pole. What excitement there must have been when these 12 spies set off. What would they find? Will the land be a good land? You see, In verses 17 to 20, the uh, instructions Moses gives them, uh, will the people be strong? One of the things they were to find out was uh, whether the people dwelt in camps or in strongholds. And when they come back and report, we find out that they are in very, very strongholds. Some of the archaeological digs of the cities of those times found that the walls were probably 40 to 50 feet tall and 12 to 15 feet feet thick in some cities. Will they be easy to defeat? 
And Moses has them finding out various things about the people. Is the land good? Are there trees? Uh, Is it rich? And then we have a brief account of their 40-day trip in verses 21 to 24. It tells about all the different areas that they went into, and they, it really was more than 250 miles from the Negev in the south to probably about the city that they mentioned is probably about 40 or 50 miles north of Damascus. And then they mention the Canaanites along the sea. So it's 250 miles about just north to south through that trip, a long hike. And you can imagine the excitement when the day came that they returned to the camp and the buzz went around the camp and everybody started to gather and wanted to know what happened. And this is where the story turns so tragic because the report of the 10 spies is a report dripping with unbelief in the God of Israel and his word of promise. Their report, in a sense, is twofold. Yes, the land is very good. And it's almost contradictory because the land swallows its inhabitants. Well, if the land is good, why does it swallow its inhabitants? Uh, I think because they're saying the people are too strong. When you look at the report that they give, the people are too strong. The cities are fortified. And they say that the people are all very large. Uh, Surely not all the people were all larger than the people of Israel. And Caleb, in verse 30, disagrees. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Later on in chapter 14, verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That was the minority report, but the majority report won. In fact, in verse 31 of chapter 13, you see that the the ten reply again to Caleb's speech, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report. Later on, it says in verse 33, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. That would, that would almost be like us saying, and we saw Bigfoot there as well. The Nephilim had perished in the flood. That was before Noah. And they're exaggerating now, bringing up like the, the boogeyman was there as well. And we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Exaggerated fear is coming out in their report at this point. And so the people believed the bad report. And they say in chapter 14, verse 4, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And they're even about to stone Caleb and Joshua. Moses has to intercede. 
In chapter 14, he intercedes yet again for the people, and God spares them. He pardons them. The Lord had threatened to destroy them. He had threatened that he promised Moses, said to him, I'll build a whole new nation out of you. But in verse 20, we see that the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Then he goes on in an extensive passage here to say that he's going to give the Israelites what they said they wanted. They had said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. And so God declares in chapter 14 that all the people of that generation, 20 years or older, in the first census at the time, at that time, who would be of that age or above, would die in the wilderness, all except these two, Caleb and Joshua. But the children of that generation, the ones about whom the people had declared, our little ones will become a prey, instead of the younger generation becoming a prey and dying, that generation would be saved and preserved and given the privilege of entering the promised land. But the generation that drew back in unbelief would not be saved. And then chapter 14 ends with the Israelites again disobeying the word of God. He's told them to turn back into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea And now they decide they're going to take the promised land. And Moses tells them, do not go up for the Lord is not among you. And they ignore him and they attempt to take the land. They attempt to enter the land and they're thoroughly defeated and driven back. Reminds us of John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, this episode of unbelief becomes a famous episode of the failure to persevere in faith in the Lord. It's summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 1 as the next generation prepares to enter the land. It's summarized in Psalm 95. We read the first part of the psalm for our call to worship. The next part we'll look at in a minute here. And it's a clarion call to beware of hardening our hearts and rebelling against the Lord. And then we find it in two New Testament spots as well, 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, which we will look at in a minute. So the second main point here is the grace and the necessity of perseverance. The grace and the necessity of perseverance. And the emphasis here from this lesson is on the necessity of believers to persevere in faith in Christ. But I say the grace of perseverance as well because both of these are held forth in the Bible. The grace of perseverance in places like Romans 8 where we see the golden chain of salvation. Right after Romans 8, 28, in verse 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The five parts of that golden chain from beginning of our salvation to the end, it's all of the Lord. God is the one who has begun the good work in us, and he will infallibly complete it, Paul is saying. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes there that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those whom God has brought to himself 
are His forever, and He will complete the good work. And we could look at many other such verses that demonstrate the grace of perseverance, God's keeping power, that He will hold us fast. And uh, so our reliance is not on our own strength or on our own effort, even though we strive with all of our might to follow Christ and to believe in Him. Yet we do not have faith in our faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done and His work on our behalf and His continued work in our lives. That is the grace of perseverance. But the Bible also contains warnings. The Bible tells us that it is necessary to persevere in faith, and that does not contradict the keeping grace and power of God. So I want us to just briefly look at these two New Testament texts. One is Hebrews 3, where the author of the book of Hebrews quotes the second half of Psalm 95. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 3, I'll pick it up at verse 6. The author is comparing Christ and Moses. And of course, Christ is greater in every way. And he says in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Notice there's an if. We are his if we hold fast. One of the great problems the book of Hebrews addresses is this problem of of not persevering. The Hebrew Christians were tempted to turn away. And this is where he quotes Psalm 95, which is a summary of Hebrews 13, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'll stop there. He goes on to apply it more. So he's saying it's necessary that you persevere and be aware. There's a warning here. Do not be deceived by sin. We need to be held accountable to one another in the body of Christ. We need the mutual encouragement and one-anothering of the body. We need to be in corporate worship. And we are called to hold to our initial confidence in Christ, firm to the end, he says. In other words, this warning is there that if you think you can abandon God and His Word to a large degree... You must not presume upon God's grace. Yes, God keeps us, but He keeps us by enabling us to persevere in faith. And even when I say these kinds of things, I'm aware that different people hear different things. On one side, maybe you're a sensitive soul, and maybe you tend to believe, well, I know the gospel is true. I can believe it's true for everyone else, but somehow I don't believe it's true for me. Uh, maybe you need to hear about the grace of perseverance and that God keeps you to the end. Or if you're someone who says, well, I want to go to heaven eventually, but I just want enough gospel that I get there, and I really want to live my life the way I do, and I hope I can do that in a minimal way, then you're someone who needs to hear the warning part 
the necessity of perseverance in wholehearted, whole-being faith in Jesus Christ. So there it is in the book of Hebrews. It's also in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. Here's Paul. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. There's that Old Testament cloud. And all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now verse 5. This is the key verse for me. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Numbers 13. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire, desire evil as they did. And he goes on to to exhort using other examples from that wilderness time. But the beginning of this chapter, chapter 10, begins with the word for. And right before that, Paul has said something very important about the need to persevere. And he's speaking about himself. He's using the athletic imagery of a wreath or a crown, you know, to, to run the race in that sense. And then in verse 26, he even applies it to himself, an apostle. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, left at, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the word is a very serious word, which we could translate be re- reprobate. He's not talking about disqualified for reward or something like that. Some translations add that. And um, there are very helpful notes in some of the Reformation Bible, um, study Bibles about this. But really, Paul is saying that even as an apostle, even as someone who has preached to others, he's never beyond the need of guarding himself. And he's not speaking in a, in a masochistic way with physically doing something to himself. He's using that athletic imagery to talk about the need to spiritually persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. And that's when he goes into this same illustration of the Israelites. And later on, to make it clearer, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's been talking about reminding them of the gospel, he says, the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved or by which you are saved. And here it is again, the word if. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, sometimes people throw out what we would say the perseverance of the faith, the doctrine of the perseverance of the faith, that God grants His people grace to persevere through all the trials of this life. And they say, you can lose your salvation tomorrow and then get it back the next day. We don't believe that. But we believe that you can hold both these channels, so to speak, of biblical truth. God gives grace to persevere. And also, it is necessary to persevere. We don't want to water down that part of Scripture's balanced message to us. Well, what does this kind of persevering faith look like? That's our brief final point here. It's a faith that trusts in Christ and believes His word of promise in spite of and in the face of all the circumstances of this life. You have to think about Caleb and Joshua waiting for 40 years to enter the land and, you know, Caleb goes up 
in Joshua chapter 15, and the three giants that are mentioned here in Numbers, there are still three giants called that there. I think they're probably sons or grandsons of those original ones, and Caleb defeats them. He's 85 by that point. It's taken that much time to get to that point that Hebron is taken by Caleb and I assume his other men in his tribe. Joshua, I think of Moses persevering, leading this group. Moses didn't, didn't get to enter the land. How must he have felt when they turned back into the wilderness? He thought they were about to enter. You know, you might look at your life and think, look at the consequences of other people's sins in my life. And of course, it's Moses' own sin that denied him entering the land. Um, but how must he have felt? Caleb, Joshua, Moses, they kept believing the word of God instead of looking at the giants and fearing them. I've jotted down a few of the giants I think Christians tend to face. The temptation of suffering. Remember Job's wife said to him, curse God and die. Suffering that's so intense that it might tempt you to turn away from God. 1 Peter 4.12 says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial which tests you as though something strange has happened to you. And secondly, there's the temptation of the world. In 1 John, we read about the temptation of the world, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, where John writes, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes on to describe three elements of love for the world. It's like the Israelites wanting to return to Israel Egypt, as we saw a week or two ago, and remembering their time there as good when it was bondage. It's like wanting to return to your old ways of sin. Or number three, the temptation of opposition. We live in a world that's always opposed to the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's true for every generation. Maybe we feel more so in our day, but still, to be willing to be mocked and laughed at and in some way ostracized because you believe the gospel and you trust in Jesus Christ even when the world is set against you. And then the fourth giant I've put down on my list is our own remaining sin and our own weakness. We think of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Seal it for the promised land, Lord. My wandering heart, our remaining sin. But even that, God tells us, will finally, He will overcome when He glorifies us, when we see Him face to face. And ultimately, it means to continue to believe that Christ, by His work on our behalf, by a certain word of promise, will faithfully bring us to the promised land in spite of all the giants that might be there. And so what are the giants that you're facing in your life? How is God calling you today, this week, to believe His Word? Have you believed the gospel in the first place? That's the first question to ask. Moses interceded for the people based on the grace and the mercy of God. He quotes what God had said to him in Exodus 32 when he revealed himself to Moses there. And we have someone so much greater than Moses. We have the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our faith, have you entrusted your life to Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, would you seek Him even this day, even this evening? 
May our faith be fixed on our great God and Savior, and may He carry us through to the promised land. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this negative example that we certainly need, and thank You even beyond that for Your amazing grace. We stand in Your grace alone. We thank You for Jesus Christ, our great captain of our faith. We take Him as our stronghold. And we pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit. Thank you.